Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're in First Kings chapter 2. I'll kind of fill us in, kind of help us get our feet on it. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 because that's where we left off last week. As you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. Nothing's missed. And um, you always know where we're going to be next. It's where we left off the week before. So would you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to, to come hungry to your table for you to speak. And know that you've got amazing things to address to us tonight. So may we have so much fun. May our spirits be lifted and our hearts be engaged and our minds be, be just be truly locked into what it is you want to speak to us. So let your Holy Spirit reveal. Let your Holy Spirit show and make clear. And let your Holy, Holy Spirit scrutinize the, the text in such a way so that we understand not just the words, but also the very heart as you tell us that there, this sense Sensual man, the the earthly carnal man cannot receive the things of God for they're spiritually discerned. But the spirit that discerns those things is the spirit who lives inside of us, the same spirit who wrote this book. So our ears are open, our eyes are open, our hearts are open. God now captivate us in your word, immerse me in your spirit, come upon me and God take my lips and attach them to your heart now. And let it be God that in the end we would be truly and absolutely clearly yours. So Father, have your way now. In Jesus' name, let your word burst open and come alive. Color in the black and white, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as it would any. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Always search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. No man is an expert. No institution is an expert. God's word is an expert. And you can always test all things to it. Now, you may not know this, but in the Hebrew, there's really only two verb tenses. We live in a linear world, so we kind of, sort of coming from the Western world, we look at things from three ways. It either has happened, that's the past, it is happening, it's the present, or it will happen, and that's the future. So everything kind of runs sort of into those three categories. But in the Hebrew, it actually only has two. It's either done or it isn't. And I really like that about God. It's, and we call those tenses the perfect or imperfect tense. Uh, obviously something that's perfect. And God, by the way, God can speak of the future in a perfect tense because as far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. And when God speaks about promises, we read that all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. In other words, it's already a done deal. And this is why we could see things, for instance, of Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, though clearly the lamb wasn't slain before God created the foundations of the world. It was a done deal. And when God places a promise on you, it's a done deal. But then there are other things that just aren't complete yet. And we're going to find that, by the way, with this young man, Solomon, ultimately, that's a bit of a spoiler alert, that his heart was not perfect towards God. When Solomon offered his heart to God, it was not a perfect action. You probably know this. To say, I do, like at the altar, you're not just saying, I say I do to commit to the night, and we'll see how long that lasts. You say, I commit to saying I do for the rest of my life. It is, in essence, supposed to be a perfect action. It's supposed to be a sealed deal that from this point on, this is the way that I'm going to be. Well, the reason I say that is, notice, by the way, in verse 12 and in verse 46, we kind of read the same thing. In verse 12, we read that Solomon sat on the throne of his father, and we read that his kingdom was firmly established. And then we get to the end of the book, or the end of the chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 46. And it says, So the king commanded, commanded Benaiah, the son of Yehoiada, that's how you say that name. Uh, he went out and struck him, and he died, and thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. 
Now, why does God have to repeat the fact that the kingdom was established? Well, it's really quite simple, to be honest. That goes back to our verb tenses. In chapter, our verse 12, it was imperfect. In other words, his kingdom was established, but not fully established. But when we get to the end of the chapter, uh, what we find in verse 46 is that his kingdom was established for good. And that tells me something. That somewhere in between these two verses, between 12 and 46, is the difference between, if you will, a wonky kingdom and a wonky establishment and a full establishment. Now, if you think about your walk with God and you think about where it started, it started at the cross where you became aware of your sins. You became aware of the fact you were guilty before God. You didn't like to think about it because it didn't make you feel good inside. But there was something refreshing about the honesty of reality. And somewhere that you were like, you know, I, I am messed up. I'm mucked up. I've got problems. And then there was this gift offered to us where God sent his only begotten son, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, just like scripture promised on the third day. And you said, I'll have that. I'll totally take that forgiveness and that purity and that cleansing and that washing and that adoption. Sure, I'll take that. Why not? And having God love me and bring me in. Oh, I'll have all of that. And then somewhere in all of that, you kind of get to, well, now how do I walk this walk? How do I live this life now between now and heaven? Because maybe if you were anything like me, when I first responded, I kind of got this, God wants to forgive you. He wants to make you clean. He wants to clear the debt so you can go to heaven. And I remember after getting saved, asking the pastor, I'd gotten saved at a music conference when I was 19. I remember asking one of the pastors after that going, so why doesn't he kill us? And he kind of looked at me. You would imagine how frightening that might look. And I'm like, well, I mean, if he, if he wanted us to make this choice so we could go to heaven, why doesn't he kill it? Well, I made the choice now, so what's left? And there's got to be something in between those two. Well, if you're anything like me, because I had responded to the gospel, but I hadn't opened up this beautiful book, what I found is that my life lived very similar to what it was before. I would have told you I was going to heaven, but if you'll pardon me for saying I live like hell. And a lot of the things, my behaviors and my mindsets and my mannerisms really didn't remotely look saved uh, as far as that was concerned. To be honest, it really, it was, it must have been a horribly confusing signal. And I remember going, God, there's got to be more than this. And I'd have these beautiful moments, perhaps at church or wherever. And by the way, I went to church at least every Sunday from the moment that I said yes to Jesus. I actually went often more than that. I was made the worship leader before I gave my life to Christ. Highly don't recommend that. And, uh, and I just remember going, man, what am I, you know, the kind of thing where you're like, something's just missing. I remember the first time I tried Thai food and I realized there's a whole new world of, of beautiful culinary experiences that I had been robbed of most of my life. Just for what it's worth. Anyways, but he only said, he was like, where you been all my life? Well, I'm in this place and I'm like, God, what am I missing? And there would be this sort of these high points where it's like, wow, there's a really cool moment where maybe that, you know, it's like, and when you're young, you do weird, you think weird things like, especially for me, because I wasn't remotely raised in a Christian home. So it's like, oh, I got the halo back or, oh, the glows back or whatever the term you want to use. And it's like, oh, oh, you got the anointment. Oh, the anointment's coming back on you. Well, What's going on between that place? And you know what that's like where you live this life where it's like you're Jesus-ish. You're like Christian-ish. Where it's like, yeah, but why am I still falling back into that sin? And why am I falling back into those same stupid mindsets? Well, might I say, maybe there is a place where the Christ has made his throne, but it's just not established to the full. 
Well, maybe this is our chapter for that then. You've shown up tonight. Clearly, God knew you needed to hear this. By the way, I showed up tonight. God knows I need to hear this too. Did you notice, basically, in between these verses, there are four people we need to deal with. There's an Adonia, there's an Abiathar, there's a Yoav, and there's a Shemai. Adonia, 13 to 25, Abiathar, 26 and 27, Joab, or Yoav, 28 to 35, and then Shemai, 36 to 46. And what if we looked at this and realized, what if this is what's supposed to be happening in our life, and are we really allowing this to happen? Because they all become, in essence, icons of a particular aspect of life that really needs to be laid to rest. Well, look at it with me. So, we start with Adonia. Now, we're familiar with Adonia from the first chapter of 1 Kings. He was the oldest son of David, but not the one promised the throne. But he took the responsibility upon himself to take it anyways. Though it was clear he knew that God had promised his younger brother Solomon, half-brother, if you will, uh, the throne, he took his own initiative and said, well, if nobody else is stepping up, clearly at this moment, dad's getting old, uh, which is, uh, I mean, dad dies at 70, so I don't know exactly how old, but David was really worn. He was road-worn from his experiences. And he's just like, well, I think somebody needs to step up. And he declares himself king, not at his father's approval, and doesn't even invite a prophet there like Nathan to be able to sort of sponsor it, if you will. This guy just does it on his own initiative. And that's where we start this. He was still a prince before that. But now he actually took the selfishness of it. And so ultimately, when Solomon is declared, I mean, remember he has this big party and everyone's like, yeah, long live King Adonia. And then Solomon is declared by dad who has the right to say it. And then everyone's like, the party's gone in an instant. They start hearing this. They're like, oh, bye. I think my mom's calling me. And off they go. And now Adonia's sort of sitting there going, oh, I'm in trouble. And and Solomon says, look, I'm not going to kill you. I mean, he might have done that to me, but I'm not going to kill you right now. Prove yourself a real man. And now we read now in verse 13, he crops up again. Verse 13 says, Now Adonia, the son of Haggith, Haggith, I remind you, means happy, came to Bathsheba, that's Solomon's uh, mom, the, oh, it says, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Say it. And he said, You know that the kingdom was mine. And that all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for or because it was from the Lord. Now, shouldn't that bother you already? It was like, you know, it was mine. You know, everybody was looking at me. You know, everyone was chanting my name. You know, everyone was throwing daisies and roses on the, on the stage and just saying, I love you. You know, and then I, and, and everyone says, you should, you the man. And he goes, yeah, but. God prepared it for the other guy. But you know that it was mine first. So because of that, that's his entitlement, by the way. Now I'll ask you one petition of you and don't deny me. And she said to him, say it. And he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give to me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. Now, Bathsheba appears to not understand what he's asking politically. So let me help you if you might not know culturally. Traditionally, one would expect the oldest son to take the throne from dad. The oldest son initially was a boy named Amnon who had raped his half-sister. This is about as dysfunctional as a family gets. And ultimately, the full brother of that half-sister named Absalom gets revenge and kills him. So the oldest brother, Yideyid. 
Then you've got another boy in there, and that's Absalom, who, by the way, then tries to kill his dad, if you will, to take the throne from him. By the way, his little brother is this guy, Adonia. They seem to be quite cut from the same rib. And, and he, of course, in that battle is killed by Joab, mind you, even against David's orders. And so he's dead. We have a third guy in there. His name is Daniel, or Chiliav. We don't know much other than he seems to have dialed, died somewhere in his childbirth or young because we don't have any record after him being listed as a child. So the number four child is Adonia, this boy here. And when the, if the father were to bequeath his personal property to the oldest boy, it was a declaration of kingship. Well, what could be more personal among the king's possessions, if you will, than his concubines? This gal, if you remember... Abishag was hired, brought into the king's house because he was so old and so weather-worn that he couldn't keep warm and they didn't have electric blankets in those days and everything was flammable. So putting a fire under your bed would have given you quite a bit of warmth but very, very short period of time and then you burned to death. So that wasn't a good idea. So the only idea left is, and to this day, by the way, they still actually have learned this, that there are places out in just north of or in the areas of Siberia, they still have similar things. Uh, it was practiced here in England until uh, the, the, middle, the medieval ages. Uh, and they would call them physicians. Somebody would just basically lay with someone else to keep them warm. Nothing, you know, nothing sexual took place. You were, in essence, just a bed warmer. Uh, and we're aware that I was saying that there are certain places where you go to really expensive hotels where you can actually hire somebody to lay in your bed before you to keep you warm. And I'm thinking, if I had the money, the last thing I'd want is somebody else laying in my bed. And I don't know how, you know, I'll take the cold over that, you know. Anyways, with all that said, so this Abishag becomes then treated like a concubine. And pardon me for saying, in the culture, she was considered a possession. So for, Ab, for Adonia to ask for this woman, who, by the way, we do read is very beautiful. Uh, I mean, they certainly didn't want to get somebody that David didn't want to lay next to. Uh, and for Adonia to ask this is, in essence, a very surreptitious and sneaky way of him trying to get the throne. Now, I remind you, Solomon's already been declared wise by his dad, but it appears as if mom didn't get that gene. And so mom kind of looks at it, at least from the text, she just goes and asks. He's like, okay, look it. And I, I remind you, don't miss this, that the reason he even feels he has the chutzpah, if you will, to even ask is because he had already had the throne for a little while. Even though it was not really granted him, he took it by force, if you will, or he took it by conniving. So someone feels like he's entitled to something that's not his. So Bathsheba says in verse 18, Very well, I will speak to you for the king. Bathsheba therefore went to the king Solomon to speak to him for Adonia. And the king rose up to me and he bowed to her and he sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. Now, I don't know if you're aware of that, but that tells me something. What that tells me is that Solomon is still a minor. You may remember, those of you who are familiar a little bit with Roman history, that uh, Nero, well, once upon a time, there was a guy named Claudius. He was an emperor. Claudius, by the way, f- pardon me for saying, means lame. And it, many people do believe he was very much that in some ways. They believe he had Bell's palsy or something. Uh, he would drool out of the side of his mouth. But he did have this. He hired a slave to remind him where he left off in a conversation. I do think that's a bit brilliant, but what do I know? You know, so he'd be like, where was I? Where was I? You know, but he, he sort of met this girl and he really was enamored with her. She had a boy. Uh, she was already a mother prior to him, and uh, he wound up marrying her, Herodias. And he, 
brought her and the boy into the house. And one day, it seems to be that she fixed him a lovely salad. Uh, but the lovely salad had some very, if you will, adventurous vegetation in it. Uh, many believe it was hemlock in, or some kind of mushroom, but intentionally killed him. And the next thing you know, Claudius is more than lame. He dead. And as he's dead, she goes to take the throne because her boy is only 17. And because her boy is only 17, she has a throne set for him, knowing that he'll be the next emperor. But she sits beside his throne because he's not legally able to rule, so to speak. But then once he turns 18, he fires mom and then takes the throne himself. His name is Blackie. Now, the only reason I say that is, do you know how to say black in Italian? Some of you better know that. Um, Let me warn you, it's a cafe out there, Nero. And Nero was ironic, by the way, he was pasty white. I mean, you know, anyways, he looked more like Ed Sheeran than he did James Brown. But he... uh, but he, had, but he had mom said, and the whole, pur- the whole purpose of all of that was is that mom was next to him because he was young. And the reason I say that is when Solomon has his uh, throne set beside him, what that tells us is Solomon really is underage at this point. And so verse 20 on that rabbit trail. She said, I desire one small petition of you. Don't refuse me. And the king said to her, ask mom, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonia, your brother, his wife. King Solomon answered and said to his mom, Now, why do you ask Abishag for Shunammite, for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonia? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he's my older brother. And I remind you, the oldest brother was the one who could do this. For him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah, they were all part of the coup that, uh, Abiath, that uh, this guy Adonia had actually tried. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adoni has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adoni shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and struck him down, and he died. In our first situation, for what it's worth, we have this Adonia character. Back in chapter 1, verse, um, verse 51 and 52, obviously Solomon had taken the throne and he said, if he proves himself a worthy man, he will live. Not one hair will fall from his head, but if wickedness is found in him, he's going to die. This was already a clear edict passed. Now, how do I apply this into my own life? What I have in my first situation is I have Adonia, the selfish prince. And the selfish prince is somebody who has no interest ever in giving up the throne. There is a part of me that's in Adonia. And I would more than likely has not hesitate to say there's a part in you as well. The part that when God, you know, we don't mind somebody calling the shots as long as we agree with them. The moment we disagree with them, we really see whether our heart is submissive or not. And the moment God says something and something inside of us inherently doesn't like it or it's sort of a bitter pill or it tastes a little bitter in our mouth, it's jagged in whatever way, we kind of wake up and we go like, ah, and... Yeah, God, I know you're the Lord, but I'm going to have to say no at this moment. You can't do that. And what we learn about Adonia is, is that Adonia never surrenders or concedes. What we find with Adonia is he just regroups. 
He retreats, regroups, and then reasserts himself. And that's what he's doing here. And he will keep doing that. And we find that, by the way, in a lot of politics. There's a group that tries to pass a bill or whatever, and they, it's defeated, so they kind of retreat, regroup, reassert it. And next, every time it gains a little bit more favor. And, gains a, and, and sooner or later, the long-term goal on that is, sooner or later, this bill is going to pass. And I bet you've had people like that. I would, I would probably say that probably there's some of you in this room that have gotten into relationships because somebody actually just continued to do that till you finally gave in. And let's, let's just be honest. Was that ever that good of an idea when it finally happened? Because you go, oh, I knew this was bad the first time and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Well, imagine what happens here. Sooner or later, Adonia is going to show his true colors. And at that point, I have to recognize only one person. This throne is only big enough for one person and it should never be the Adonia. And my, 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 the way that God establishes his throne in my life, my Christianity, my walk with Jesus will never be firmly established perfectly, completely. If there's always going to be constantly this guy fighting over who really is the alpha in my life. And unfortunately... The moment in romance, in the area of friendships, in the area of dreams, in the area of priorities, somehow we feel like we have a right to take it back. I want to remind you, God is not Bell, and we're the beast telling him somehow, stay out of the wing. We can't do that with God. The house is his. At least that's what we said and we sing. But there's always some Adonia, and ultimately that Adonia has to die. We have to hand them over and say, Lord, and we know this because what we read is the old man was crucified and buried with Christ. That's the good news because part of that old man was the Adonia. We just don't need to resurrect the guy. We need to let him die because sooner or later, he's going to bump until he gets the throne or you're just going to have to be set free. Second guy. So we have the selfish prince. Verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you're deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David. And because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord. And so he spoke concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now the situation goes back again to the time in which uh, Absalom actually asserts himself to actually try to take over his father's throne. And when he does, he grabs a few people with him. And as he seeks to gather a few people, one of the people he gathers is this priest. This priest who had served David. And though this priest had served David, when it came time to actually side with David when his son performs this mutiny, this coup, he actually jumps ship and joins Absalom's crew in his rebellion. So what do we see in this? In the simplest sense, he was never not a priest, but he was not faithful in it. In the first case, we had a selfish prince with Adonia. In the second case, we had a faithless priest with Abiathar. And by the way, this is what happens. is somewhere down the line, 
Abiathar knows that he's serving the Lord, but he's not just serving the Lord. And he knows at this moment, sort of the momentum is actually bending on Absalom. He knows at this moment, that boy's gathered his crew. He looks like a rap video. He's got his entourage. He's got the nice place. He's gathered all the people's hearts. And now he's rushing the kingdom, if you will. And it's a total rebellion. And it's a total revolt. And at this moment, a king needs to, or I'm sorry, a priest needs to stand up and say the most horrible and hard words to say as far as the world's concerned. That's wrong. But nobody wants to hear that. And nobody has a problem when you want to bless. Let me, I just want to tell you, I want to just want to pray blessings. And even if you're an atheist, I just want to pray blessings on you. Oh God, just bless them. You don't want to pray things like, oh God, crush his heart until he finally says yes to you. Who wants to hear that? Actually, God does, because what God wants is a relationship with them. And if you have to come with a broken heart, and likely will, he'd rather have that than you run into hell without it. In the second case, in my own life, by the way, what I've learned here is that there is a part of me that's like that too. There's a part of me that does crave the intimate and beautiful things of God, but there's also a part of me that craves the things of the world. And I look at this and I realize, though there's that selfish prince in me that really wants to you know, jump in and take claim alpha, there's also this faithless priest in me that at times looks and goes, you know, the, how do I mix the two? And you know, the moment you start doing things like, can I still do this and go to heaven? How much of this can I still play? And you know, it's kind of like, this is a poison. How much of this can I really take before I actually have to go to the doctor and get my stomach pumped? Or, well, how long do I have to play this before, to be honest, I get HIV or I get some other STD or whatever? I mean, how long can I play this? How far can I go? But the, the problem is, you know you're already going where there's, it's sort of like Russian roulette. How many times can I pull the trigger before I blast my brains out? The fact that you even have to ask tells us where our hearts are, right? I'm like, well, how much of this can I add? Well, now that I've been cured from this particular disease, well, how much can I rub it back into my system and still somehow assume that my autoimmune system is going to fight it now? But if you hated it in the first place, why would you want any? And in my own life, what I realize is, notice this guy didn't die, this guy got deposed. He ceased being the influence over the people in the area of God. He no longer was able to stand around over the people, if you will, and declare the things of God. At this point, he's going to go and, stay and live in his house, and that's all there is to it. Your influence is over. And might I say, in our own lives, who has that? In, who is the priest of the world to you? You know, it's like there are certain people you hang out with, and it just seems like you are so in love with God when you're with them. And then there are other people you hang out with them, and God is at best a byword. Who are the priests of that to you? And again, he doesn't say kill him. That's not what Solomon did. What he did is he deposed him. He said, you no longer have that influence in my life like you used to. Interesting, by the way. He told us this with the fulfillment of Eli. Uh, Eli, or Eli, if you will, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Eli, who was the priest in the time, had, and here this, here this interesting parallel, he had two sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. By the way, their names mean puncher and serpent mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but a priest who's got two sons named puncher and serpent mouth already tells me the household's a little bit messed up. But what's worse is they actually live up to their names. They're, they're actually molesting girls at the gate of the, ta- of the tabernacle. In other words, they're having sex with girls right there at the door of the church. And as people are giving offerings, they're sticking there going, just give me that, I want that meat, give me that meat. And God says, the problem wasn't that. The problem was that dad never once corrected them. 
Never once at that point, uh, all this was happening, did you ever sit down and go, boys, do you see that room? That's the woodshed. And you and me are going over there right now. Because at this point, at the end, his dad will go, you know, I hear these bad things. You really, you guys really shouldn't do that. Like that's going to go anywhere. And God says, you know what? This is done. This family of yours is not going to be priests forever. They're going to be deposed. And what we find is, in the same way, God says, for those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And you sons have despised me. God says, now, here it is. It's come to pass. And I realize how easy it is, especially when we call them our friends, how hard it is to be able to say, you know, that is not acceptable in my sight. Isn't it interesting? Nobody ever seems to cuss using somebody else's God's name. You ever see anybody bang their hand or their foot and go, oh, Buddha. I don't see it anywhere. Strange as it is. You don't hear anyone go, Muhammad, damn that. You know, and it's amazing. It isn't like somewhere down the line, someone's really frustrated and they go, Hari Krishna. But they'll mention Jesus by name. It's like somewhere I'm like, you know what? If we're going to be politically correct, could you stop using my God's name in vain, please? I don't talk about your mom like that. Well, you don't know my mom. And well, you get it. All right. So the whole point of it here is there's I'm halfway through this. But I'm looking at this going, now what about my own life? Am I willing to stand up to those influences and if they're refusing to change, remove their influence from my life. Because I remind you, this is the difference between an unestablished throne and an established throne. Or do I want to just kind of live that convoluted, wishy-washy life with God and then somehow assume I'm going to stand before him one day and he's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. Do I really think that? Because I want God to say that. I don't want him to go, well, <laughs> you made it. It just doesn't seem, that just seems so silly to me. Solomon's doing house cleaning, and, he, and you know, one guy that's going to know he's on the list now is John. So we have our selfish prince with Adonia. We have our faithless priest with Abiathar. And now we have this guy. Verse 28. The news came to Joab. Joab Joab had defected to Adonia. We know who that is now. Though he had not defected to Absalom. But he had done a lot of other things too. He had killed two people during peacetime. David had made that clear to Solomon. And you know why? Because both of these men were forgiven by David, but not forgiven by Joab. I mean, one of them had killed his brother in battle. So you can see him like, my name is Joab. You killed my brother. Prepare to die. And he was not going to let it go. David extended great mercy and forgiveness. But Joab was not going to do that. The other guy, by the way, had led, by the way, the army of Absalom. But when Absalom was defeated, he actually went and sought forgiveness from David as well. Received forgiveness from David. Both of these guys were stabbed in the guts by Joab. He was not going to grant that forgiveness. Interesting for what it's worth here. Yahweh realizes Solomon's cleaning house and he realizes he's probably next in the list. So it says then, so Yahweh fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. 
The horns of the altar were in essence idiomatic of the the cities of refuge. You may be aware that in Scripture, God had left these particular cities that a manslayer, somebody who had accidentally killed, not intentionally killed somebody, was able to flee to because obviously the moment someone dies, an avenger from that family, believe it or not, we had avengers back then too, an avenger from that family would come then to try to even the, uh, even the score. And so what would happen is you could go and flee to a city of refuge if you were somebody who had killed accidentally. And the horns of the altar were in essence idiomatic. They were the emblem of that. The idea of it was that if you weren't, if you didn't know what you were doing, there was forgiveness. Do you understand why then Jesus would say from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is taking murder and making it manslaughter so it could be forgiven. Oh, the mercy and grace of Jesus. Because that is the kind of mercy and grace that is extended to an offender like David had with these two men, Abner and Amasa. So the guy goes and he flees and he takes hold of the horns of the altar. Verse 29, King Solomon said, You have his fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and there he is by the altar. So Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Yehudah, and said, Strike him down. But I went to the tabernacle of the Lord and he said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And Yoav says instead, No, he said, No, I will die here. So Benaiah went and Brought word back to the king. This is what Yoav said. I will die here. And thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Well, do as he said. Strike him down and bury him. He said he'll die here. Well, I guess he's going to die there. So you may take away from me and from my house and of my father the innocent blood that Yoav shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with a sword, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Yitter, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Yoav and upon the head of his descendants forever. You know what's interesting is he doesn't, David, when he calls vengeance on this guy, what I find interesting is he didn't say because he killed his son Absalom, even though that truly grieved David. But at least he was an enemy at the moment, as where these guys have been granted forgiveness, a very different story. Their blood, therefore, shall return on the head of Yoav and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Yehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Now we have our third guy. As we have with Adonia, we have a selfish prince. With Abiathar, we have a faithless priest. With Joab or Yoav, we have a vengeful pest. He is someone who will not take forgiveness. Do you realize how important this is to Jesus? He tells us this, and of course, most of you may be aware of when the disciples say, teach us to pray, forgiveness is right in the middle of it. But remember, it's the one clause that is actually reliant. He says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus says, by the way, for whatever sins you're willing to forgive, we'll expect them forgiven. But if you're not willing to forgive men's sins, well, then why would you expect the Father to forgive you yours? And he tells us a story about a man who was forgiven a tremendous debt, a fantastic, unamassable, unrepayable debt. 
And then leaving that situation, though falling to his knees and saying, have mercy on me, for I will grant you it all. Give me time, I'll pay it. As he leaves, there's a guy who owes him a very little amount of money in comparison, who now owes the guy that owed the big guy. And now he turns to him, the same script is read, the same words that that man had just said, and then said, no way. And he takes him and throws him in jail instead. And the master to whom was owed the great debt looks and he goes, what are you doing? How in the world can you not forgive when I have forgiven you so much? Could you compare the unforgiveness you have in this offense to the, uh, to the debt that you owe me? And I realize why this guy has to die. Because you really want to wither in your Christian walk, live in bitterness and unforgiveness. And that doesn't mean that the offense isn't real. In both of the cases, both of those were indebted men. There were clearly obvious and real debts. We're not belittling that. The issue is, I guarantee you, you will never have to forgive more than you've been forgiven. And I'm not belittling horrible things that have happened to you. And believe me, we won't compare. But I know what it's like to have really horrible things done. But I also know that unforgiveness and bitterness is drinking poison despite your enemies. It does not benefit them. It doesn't even punish them. It just hurts you. Why relive the offense over and over? If what happened is someone punched you in the face, why continue to punch yourself in in your face while they're gone? And Yoav was a vengeful pest. He has no interest in grace and he has no interest in forgiveness. Isn't that the very sheer foundation of our walk with Christ, is forgiveness? Isn't that what's amazing about walking with Christ? Is that we can honestly, and I want to warn you, you live in a place where you're living in unforgiveness, it's going to be really hard to wrap your head around the forgiveness of Christ. Because your world's so full of unforgiveness, how do you see through that to see His? Here's the good news. You could say, I don't have the power to forgive. I might say, you know, you're probably right. But the one who forgave Hitler of his sins and the one who forgave Tex Watson, who manhandled and slaughtered the DiBiase family and for Charles Manson. And by the way, we, we've actually got to speak with Rex Allen, with um, Tex Watson, who, by the way, gave his life to Christ. And one of the ways that one of the things that led him to it was one of the family members of the survivor of that family that was murdered by him came in and told him that she forgave him. It was her mother that was murdered. She says, I'd given my life to Jesus, and I don't know how, but I know that the one who lives inside me has the power to forgive you, and I'm just relying on him to do it. And that turned that man to handing his life over to Jesus. You're like, well, that man deserves to die. We all do. But might I say this, the man who did that did die when he said yes to Jesus because God took that man and nailed him on the cross and buried him and raised up a new person in his place. How can I expect the kingdom of God to be established in my life if I live completely antithetically of that? By being bitter, hating, and unforgiving. Now look at, what if they're unrepentant? What if they're still going to live that life? That doesn't mean you don't that you subject yourself to that torture. 
That means you're not going to choose to build a house on that problem from this point on. You throw it at the feet of Jesus, and it may be aerobic activity. You may continue to be throwing it there, but it's like, Jesus, I need you to get this off of me because this is no longer going to define me any longer. This is not who I am because whoever is in Christ is a new creation, and I'm not going to let that be the tattoo that is on my face for people to see for the rest of my life. I want them to see you. So the selfish prince, he's got to die. The faithless priest, he's got to be deposed. But the vengeful pest, he's going to die in you. And that takes us to our last person. 36. Then the the king sent and called for Shemai. And of course, we're familiar with Shemai's situation. He was the one who had cursed David when he was fleeing from his son. And what did he do? He says, God's getting you back for what you did to my family because he was part of the family or at least the tribe of Benjamin from which Saul, the previous king, had come from. And he just continued to haunt David with his past. So the king sent and called for Shemai and he said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day that you cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shammai said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shammai dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Stop there before we go any farther. Don't miss the situation at this point. Here's our situation. There's a guy and he clearly deserves to die. He has thrown rocks at, he's cursed David. While David was fleeing, weeping, barefoot, because his son's trying to murder him, take his throne, this guy's going, Ah, look at you now, you're not such a big boy now, are you? And David's commander's like, you know what? Give me one shot, I'll whack his head off. I won't even have to strike twice. Give me one shot. And David is so defeated at this point. He's like, you know, may the Lord sent this guy to curse me. I deserve this. David is listening to the to this point, the condemner. And listen, 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 please. Because if we're going to let God's throne be established in our lives, there's got to be freedom. The whole idea of forgiveness, and I don't know if we realize that until we wind up forgiving, is without forgiveness, there really isn't freedom. We're in bondage to that bitterness. But here's the other aspect of it. This guy had gathered Benjamin against David. When this was happening, he gathered a whole crew of people. So what does David or what does Solomon do? Solomon says, you need to live not in Benjamite territory anymore because I know what would happen if you lived in Benjamite territory. You would recruit. So you're going to live where the Judas, where the Judeans are, which by the way, Solomon's of the tribe of. So you're going to stay here in Jerusalem. If you go east beyond, that's, by the way, one Sabbath day's journey, it's 2,000 feet. If you go beyond those hills, that's the Mount of Olives, by the way. That's that whole area there. If you go beyond that, it's going to start becoming Benjamite territory again. So you get the idea. In other words, Solomon says you're grounded. And you are not going where the Benjamites are because I'm not going to allow you the opportunity to go and recruit again. And up to this point, the guy says, I think that's more than fair. 
I mean, I recognize. I mean, when David was reestablished as the king after Absalom died, the guy takes his crew and they throw themselves at David's feet. Like, oh, we were just kidding. Loose paraphrase. You know, you really are the king. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And David's like, I'm not going to kill you today. So Solomon says, hey, if you really are a man of yourself, if you're really going to be about this, you can live here and be in peace. However, that's not the way it worked. Verse 39. Now it happened at the end of three years, three years of quiet. Two slaves of Shammai ran away to Achish, the son of Ma'acha, the king of Gath. And they told Shammai, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. By the way, that's actually west versus east. Nonetheless, it's way out of Jerusalem. It's the area today, by the way. You're looking at the area near the Gaza Strip. So Shammai arose, settled his donkeys, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shammai went through and brought his slaves from Gath. He went and returned them. Interestingly enough, by the way, notice what's taking place here. Here is a guy that is throwing your past and condemning you for your past. And by the way, most of it's a lie. David never tried to kill Saul. And yet, he's lying and he's condemning David for it and saying, you deserve all of this. Every horrible thing in your life, you deserve it. And you deserve more than that, you rotten, horrible person. You are filth. You are worthless. You are nobody's going to ever love you. You're never going to get anywhere. You're always going to be nothing. Ha! This is all on your head, man. Notice, by the way, this guy cannot be contained. Sooner or later, he is going to leave the boundary set because he has to go get something. What is he going to get? You tell me. What's he chasing after? Why does he leave Jerusalem? What is he trying to get? Now, we just went through it. What is it he's going to Gath to get? Slaves! Don't miss that. They were his slaves. And now he's going to go get those slaves and bring them back. And there is the danger of your past condemning you. It makes a slave out of you, and you can't just contain it. This guy's got to die. That's got to be laid to rest. And all of a sudden, what you find is your past becomes something that constantly, if you look back and you're like, look at what my life is like now. You know, I'll always be broken. I'll always be used because of this and this and this and this. Well, who do you think is condemning you? Do you really think that's God condemning you? Do you ever think God's going to say that? The condemner and the accuser of the brethren are one, and that's the enemy of your soul. And what happens is, he does not like the fact that he just lost a slave. And you've said yes to Jesus, and he says, no, I'm going back after you. Man, if you are haunted by your past, you need to let Jesus lay that to rest. It is not who you are anymore. You belong to God now. You've been born again. You know what that means? You've got a whole new start. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Not just the moment you became Christ in Christ, you became a new creation. You are continually made one. The old has passed away. He says, I make all things new. He says, when we are new creations, he says that the old has passed away and the new has come. All of that stuff is dead. So why are we going to let that define us? It's like getting our definition from our tombstone. It's like, tell me what you are as a Christian. Well, I'm an ex this and I'm an ex that. Well, don't tell me what you were. Tell me what you are now. 
So in Matthew, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, they bring to Jesus the possessed. That would be fun to watch. The powerless, the paralyzed. And those that are tormented with even emotional distresses. And they bring them to Jesus and he heals them all. Piles of cots and cranes and, uh, sorry, and chains and crutches all laid before him. And he looks now, all of these people, that's all they've known. I was the drug addict. I was the fighter. I was the, I was the possessed person. I was the legion. I was the, I was the paralytic. I was helpless. Whatever that is for you, fill in your space there. But Jesus doesn't look at him and he goes, let me tell you what you are now. You're not paralyzed. So just tell people, I'm a former paralyzed guy. I'm a former possessed fella. He says, you know what you are now? Remember how Matthew 5 begins when he begins his message? You're blessed. That's what you are. You're blessed. And you're blessed. And you're blessed. Eight times you'll say, you are blessed poor in spirit, the meek. Interesting as he speaks about those people. He even says you're blessed when you're persecuted. But you need to recognize no matter what the situation is, if you're mine, you're blessed. So stop trying to draw your personality and identity from what you were when now you're blessed. But you will never have that as long as your Shammai is still constantly throwing that in your face, and worse yet, you're choosing to listen to him. Because you know what he really wants? He wants his slave back. The worst part is, that was you, and that was me. I was a horribly, horribly violent person. I was—I never spoke with anyone. I mean, now it's so fun. The only reason I say that is, I, I don't even recognize that guy. The guy that was quiet and never spoke to anyone and just never smiled and would have rather punched you in the face than said hi that guy is so dead that anyone who knows me as long as they've known me have never seen that person I love that but I don't want you know so when someone says well you know I was this is the way I was born and I should just be able to be that way I'm like I was born really violent you want to be you I'll be the old me let's see how that works out or better yet why don't you meet the new me I think you'll like him a lot more and I'm not going to drag the old guy to be honest he's not good at parties either and he's certainly horrible in ministry and he's terrible in relationships Shemai goes and he goes after his slaves and he goes and he brings them back verse 41 let's close this up Solomon was told that Shemaiah had gone from Jerusalem to Geth. By the way, Geth means to press, to squeeze. And then he had come back now. He's come back with his slaves. Verse 42, And the king sent and called for Shemaiah and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, No for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you'll surely die? And you said to me, The word you've said is good. Now, I'm going to review. This was our contract, right? Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? And the king said, Moreover to Shammai, you know as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David because the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. Strange, isn't that what you said back in the day? Well, now it's your turn. Have you ever heard anyone tell you this? Say that when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Anyways, so King Solomon shall be blessed. 
and the throne of my father David, David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Yochiada, and he went down and struck him down and he died. And thus the kingdom was established. You want God's kingdom established on you? I want him on me. I don't want to be wishy-washy. I don't want to be like a pendulum where one day I'm super in love with the Lord and the next day I'm... Here's the good news. If I backslide, you know it. There's no subtlety with me, as you're probably aware of. I'm, there, I'm not good with subtlety. Uh, only when it's necessary. But it's a conscious effort. But the selfish prince has to die. The part of me that's fighting over who really calls the shots in my life. The faithless priest has to be deposed. He needs to be sent out and say, you know what? You be my influence, God. Because there are certain things that feel right that aren't right at all. And people will play into that. And in the end, I'm really losing it. The vengeful pest, the one who will not accept the grace of God, will, will gladly take the grace of God upon himself, but has no interest in issuing it. That guy's got to die too. God does not need vigilantes picking up the slack for his forgiveness. And the vindictive past, the accuser, the condemner, I am a slave no more. And I will not pretend to be one. And I will not build my identity as the new improved ex-slave. I am a free man in love with God. And I am a son of the king of kings. I am forgiven and set free. And man, I want to love you guys and serve you guys and bless you guys because I am not who I was before. I'm not remotely who I was before. I'm entirely different. And praise God for that. And the reason I know this for sure isn't just the proof in the pudding. The reason I even started to know it was because the one thing that was inconquerable by man, God did by sending his son to die on the cross. And he took that death that I rightly deserve and he took it upon himself. And it didn't end there. Three days later, on the third day, just like God had promised, he rose again and said, now there's a new life now. The old one where death ruled, it's not yours anymore. So when I lay Adonai to rest, I pick up my cross now. Instead of being self-serving, I pick up my cross daily and say, you're the boss. When I lay my Abiathar to rest, I commit to following Jesus, not just 52 times a year on Sundays or worse, less. Or maybe I'll add Christmas and Easter, but 365. Faithful to carry God to men and man to God like a priest would. I'm going to let him be my influence now. When I lay my Joab to rest, I watch God forgive people I could never have forgiven otherwise. And I grow in grace as I'm called to in 2 Peter 3.18. And when I put my Shemai to rest, I accept Jesus' forgiveness for my past and I move forward. And today I want God's kingdom established in you and I want him established in me and let's walk out of here and watch the world change first in us and then around us. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. I want to thank you for the wisdom you've given Solomon and the way that you've given us insight into the text. And I recognize tonight, God, that there may be different individuals in our own lives that are, we're actually all battling. For some of us, it may be the Adonia, the argument over who really has final say and who really is the boss. Tonight, by the power of your Holy Spirit, lay that selfish prince to rest. For some, it's really our problem with allegiance to the Abiathars. 
those that are faithless priests, or even ourselves giving, in essence, being a murky well instead of the pure water you desired for us to be, that fountain of living water. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see you lay that Abiathar to rest, to depose him from the influence that he would have in our life and make us a faithful priest. As you've told us, you've made us kings and priests now. We'll see that in Revelation 1, 6 and 5, 10. And then we're a royal priesthood. Oh God, make us faithful in that. For those who are struggling, Lord, with forgiveness, they know they've been hurt. They can still feel the pain. They can still feel the breath on their neck, the grief in their heart, the disappointment, the disgust, the self-loathing that's birthed from it. God, please, forgive through us where we cannot forgive. And lay the Joab to rest. And for those who are still dealing with their shemais, that past, that haunt, give us divine forgetfulness. That we not, do not look back at the past on one side with full condemnation or any condemnation because there's no condemnation for those who are in you. Or we don't look back and think the glory days are what's behind us. We look ahead and we realize the future is so bright. Jesus, we confess, we can be confident in this because you died for us on the cross. As you died for us on the cross, all of that past, all of our guilt, was paid for. Even the things that are yet to be discovered have been paid for in full. Just like you promised in your scriptures, you became the substitutionary sacrifice for all our sins. You were buried so we could be reminded that all of this has been buried for good. And just like your scripture promised, you rose on the third day to offer us a new life and we embrace that new life declaring you as not just Savior, that sacrifice, but also as our Lord. So establish your throne in our hearts now for good. Jesus, in your name we pray. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.